This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey guys, quick thing. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by Mook Delivery, bringing you the food you love. Mook Delivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with Mook Delivery. So the only question left to say is, are you in? Order now on the McDonald's app and you can get reward points delivered too. So the ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus, rewards registration required, points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello and welcome to the Guna Talk. Back again with you guys for another episode of our Let's Talk Arsenal series, a show in which we talk to a fabulous selection of guests regarding our beloved club of Arsenal. Today, I'm very happy to be joined by CBS Sports' Ben Jacobs. How are you doing, mate? You good? You well? Good evening. I hear we're on a time limit because we have to get back for Love Island at nine. Yes, we do. Yes, you see. Uh, the chat box give me absolute pelters for this, but uh, y- you like what you like. You can't judge people's uh, hobbies, shall we say, as long as they're you know not weird or something. But <laughs> <laughs> Love Island is not weird, I'll have you know. Um, no, Ben, thank you for jumping on. It's always a pleasure to, to catch up with you. Um, and I-, I much enjoy our chats because obviously we get to talk into a lot of kind of the, the social side of reporting on transfers. The last show that we did together, we went in detail, nothing to do with like a blinks. We just spent, I think it was about 40 or 45 minutes just talking about kind of the the trepidation, the trials and everything that goes with reporting on transfers. And to kick off, I want to continue in that vein before we go into kind of the names, which I know everyone's desperate for us to talk about. But how have you found reporting on this window in 2023? I saw a tweet the other day saying transfer season was often described as silly season, but this year hasn't necessarily felt as silly maybe as previous years. I think it's felt sillier, to be honest. I suppose really? it depends what That's club you're following. Uh, maybe for Arsenal, there's that focal point of everything's been about Rice and now Timber. And because Havertz has already got over the line and that will be announced shortly, maybe Arsenal feel like business has been done early, but also there's been more clarity over targets and spending. But I think that the opening to the window has almost felt like deadline day week. And part of that is because of the Saudi deals on top. Mm. And partially it's because I've been covering the Manchester United takeover as well. So I'm exhausted, if I'm honest with you. I think we've seen early movement of some of the really big plot lines. And that includes Lionel Messi to Inter Miami, Jude Bellingham to Real Madrid, and some spending from clubs like Arsenal on Havertz, but also a whole string of outgoings, which you'd expect. And then when you add expected departures from various clubs... And on top of that, you have the uncertainty, as I said before, at Manchester United. It's just constant stories. And 
what I would say about Saudi Arabia is because it's at such a high volume and because they're all relatively global names, there's interest. And it doesn't matter who it is, whether it's Koulibaly, who was announced the other day, all the way through to a player like Karim Benzema joining Al-Itihad. There's a real craving for news. And not only are the deals moving fast, but maybe partially down to the culture. It's middle of the night stuff. I mean, N'Golo Kante was announced at Al-Itihad at midnight UK. And that mm. might not seem crazy late, but you've got to add two hours to factor in what time it is at Saudi Arabia. And I don't get it because if you want maximum global appeal, which is part of the point of growing the league and taking the eyeballs beyond just Saudi Arabia, why, if you're Al-Itihad, would you sit around in a room and say, 2 a.m. is the golden hour to <laughs> announce N'Golo Kante to the world? But I've lived out in that region, so I'm well mm. aware that it's different culture. People stay up a little bit later. Maybe there's not as big an onus on social media. It's just a case of if it's done, get it out there. Maybe Arsenal fans would quite like that approach. If it's done, get it out there. Don't delay it. Don't torture us. Don't tease us with photos of Kai Havertz at a wedding. Just get it out there. And then it's official. And then there couldn't be any complications or failed medicals or whatever. So I found it quite busy, but as ever, I'm lucky to do this job. So I think the last mm. thing I would do is come on any show, talk football and complain about it. <laughs> no, indeed. To be fair, there are some things that are drawbacks within it. And I think, you know, I talked about reporting on transfers as a, as a thankless task. You know, you you tweet news, you, you tweet information that you've scoured to get and the immediate response is, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? There's no really appreciate you going out your way to get this information it's what's next what's next but that's the nature of the beast the transfers and you know we live with that um but yeah it's i think from an arsenal perspective the reason why maybe it's not been as silly is because arsenal are moving proactively at the beginning of this window you know they're looking to get their business done early whereas mm. last summer we saw you know the fabio vieira deal kind of came out of nowhere at the beginning we then saw gabriel jesus announced just before the pre-season tour started in, in germany and we made his debut against nuremberg we then saw zinchenko announced during the u.s tour and then we you know gradually we kind of went towards the end of the window with nothing else happening and i think this time around Arsenal are very succinct, they're very targeted, they're focused on what they want to do. Um, do you think that's the sign of a club that kind of has got, got its cards in order now, having just competed for a title and now pushing on to try and close the gap with City even further? Yeah, I think so. Arsenal are ultimately going to spend a lot of money in this window. And even if you just take Timber plus Havertz and then you start looking at potentially one or two others coming in, the total spend from Arsenal's point of view is going to be absolutely massive. And that's where maybe Chelsea warped the market in January because people very flippantly say 150 million, 200 million, and they expect their club to spend 300 million or 400 million because seemingly every target that you're looking for is basically minimum by Premier League standards about 40 million, unless they're on a free transfer or they've got a release clause. And the really top players like Declan Rice are pushing 100 million or more. So suddenly three signings, which is very normal for a summer window at, let's just say, an average of 60, 70 million already pushes you towards 200 million. And that's a massive spend. It's a record spend for mm. most of the clubs in the Premier League. And I think the other thing to emphasize, which maybe people don't always understand, is that the window is not about doing stuff. It's not about showing off. It's not about doing more than you have to. It's about getting smart business done, sometimes quickly and sometimes staggered. 
And it's the staggered part, I think, that people don't always consider. So you're working two or three windows ahead and then you're looking for opportunism and you're also reflecting on the previous season where there's need. So Arsenal may look at the unfortunate wobble and say, now we need this. Or they mm. might just look at Champions League football and say, now we need depth. Or they might look at outgoings and say, we need to add one. Then you've got the longstanding targets of which we know Declan Rice is one. But then you've got the staggered part. And by the staggered part, I mean... You get your business done early to begin with, but you don't want to do everything. It's basically like you're on holiday and I give you 20 quid and there's four gift shops and you go into the first gift shop and you're like, I love that thing. I'm going to spend all my money on that thing. I'm done. And mm. then you never know what's in the other gift shops, but you've also not taken the time to kind of stagger the experience. So with a window, I always describe it as four phases. Phase one is pre-window. What were you planning? What can you get over the line? Phase two is pre-season and a manager will often want to wait a little bit with certain choices to see everybody gel and then determine if you want choice A or choice B. And I think Arsenal basically did that with Tielemans where they had him on the hook. They knew that they could get him if they wanted to, but why move fast when Vieira had come in and maybe Arteta wanted to wait a little bit and see whether it was actually the right fit. So that's pre-season where Instead of just having a target, you have the reality of seeing your players, both new and old, together. And then you might have things like Balogun conversation tells you he wants to leave. So suddenly you say, well, actually, that money we were going to spend on this target, we now might actually put in a different direction. Then stage three is you've kicked a ball. And you might get an injury or you might lose your first three games or you might think I need a number one goalkeeper and the number one goalkeeper, not in Arsenal's case, obviously, bad example. But you might feel like you needed that. And if it was Chelsea and Kepa, he's actually played a blinder in the opening three games before the window shuts. And you know what? We're just going to stick with him and we'll reassess it in January. And then finally, you have deadline day itself or the days leading up to deadline day where there's a lot of movement. So there's more opportunism, there's more panic, there's more urgency. So the window isn't about a race to get in every single name. It's about a process and the timing of when you move is contingent on all those things that I've outlined. So those that criticize their club for not moving early or moving too early, they actually don't understand how the window works. And look at Tottenham. What did they do last window? And Arsenal fans will enjoy this, of course. They brought in a bunch of players early and they were just like a kid in a candy store. Five, six, seven squad mm -hmm. players coming in and there was no chemistry. And how many of those players that came in early from the six, seven, eight that they signed actually were regulars in the starting 11 and in the starting 11 performing. There weren't too many of them. So maybe Spurs should have waited because they'd have realised very quickly if they'd have waited that they were a defensive shambles and that they were over-reliant on Harry Kane for output. And maybe they'd have moved in a slightly different direction, but the money was spent. Yeah, it's a really interesting point, actually. And I remember that Spurs' players in particular were, they were highlighted a lot as kind of in the, I think the Premier League did and Sky did a kind of team of the window, if you like, best signings. And I think Spurs had a number featured, which was Richarlison, uh, Perisic and Basuma were all, I think, featured. I think there was a, a, perhaps Romero was also in there too. And I think that the perception of deals being done really quickly sometimes ignores the actual player profile itself and then the weight of how early and how efficiently the club mm. did the deal can take over the perception of that transfer. So Arsenal's approach to certain signings being more thought out, being more considered, um, 
and, and not only Arsenal, but I think we've seen Manchester United be pretty considered uh, in their approach and in terms of valuation for Mason Mount and stepping back from it when it's gone too far. And arguably Chelsea have to some degree with the Caicedo thing, which we'll come on to shortly. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The It's interesting to see how the different approaches of clubs are appreciated, but perhaps mm. there's a little bit of hyperbole about the clubs that do their deals early when in reality the business isn't as good as it might look in, say, a couple of months' time in the reality of football. Um, let's talk about Caicedo because that's kind of – he's on the thumb now. He's, he's the guy that I wanted to discuss because I think he's the biggest profile of player that's kind of fallen to the wayside in the terms of talking Arsenal transfers during this summer window. Mm. When we went into the window – you saw a lot of Arsenal fans using the Rice-Ado thing, um, <laughs> with, you know, the hope that both Rice and Caicedo would be coming through the doors because, you know, we'd been led to believe and, you know, certainly credible sources had suggested and certainly I was told that Arsenal's interest from January hadn't disappeared, it persisted and that there was, still was an interest in mm. Caicedo moving into the summer transfer window. But Arsenal have not moved to Brighton. You know, there's been no necessary discussions with on the player side either during this window, as far as I'm aware. Why do you think that it never really was kind of a Rice-Ado situation for Arsenal during this window and it was all just Rice? And if it's not Rice, then it could be Caicedo. I think Arsenal never ruled out both. But again, that's just because that's how the window works. If Caicedo ever thought he was only coming in if Rice didn't come off, then if he's got another choice, he's going to feel like Arsenal didn't want him as much as that other club. So you have to kind of take both transfers to the point of, completion or in this case exploration because obviously Caicedo and Arsenal hasn't been as advanced in the summer compared to how it was in January and that's normal players get a consistent narrative players know that a deal is a possibility but ultimately Arsenal have to make choices and those choices won't just be about what Mikel Arteta wants they'll also be financial considerations so do you want to drop 100 odd million on Rice and if you're successful 80 odd million and some say more on Moises Caicedo so I think that the accurate description at this point is that Arsenal are putting all their time and energy on Rice and the interest or certainly the energy around Caicedo has cooled. But that's not to say in a long window that they won't return at some point. It depends partially on the Brighton valuation, partially on also whether Arsenal feel that maybe the player wants to join Chelsea. And if he agrees personal terms with them, they're wasting their time. And that's another mm-hmm. thing. Lots of people ask me the other way around. Why are Chelsea not pushing for Rice. He's a long-standing target. They feel like he wants to stay in London. Surely it's Arsenal or Chelsea. How on earth have Chelsea not entered the race more seriously for Rice? And maybe they just realise that if they're in a straight head-to-head with Arsenal, they're not going to win because Arsenal are more stable. Arsenal can offer him Champions League football, which is a big motivating factor, perhaps less so with Caicedo. So you don't just want to, again, do something for show, do something because there's a buzz around it on social media or wherever. You've got to be able to afford both and you've got to feel like you've got a high chance of success. So I think at the moment, Arsenal don't feel like they can't get Caicedo because let's not forget when they last bid for him in January, he issued a public statement basically after Arsenal's latest bid saying he wanted a magnificent opportunity. And it was kept vague because... Caicedo always knew that it could be Arsenal, it could be Chelsea and had a lower confidence as the window went on in that final week, especially that he was going to be able to move anywhere. So this is why the statement didn't specifically say Arsenal. Otherwise, it puts him in quite a difficult position if it is Chelsea that he ends up moving Mm. to. So I think that the reality is Arsenal are not significantly working on Caicedo now, but let's wait and see whether that changes. And as you rightly say, 
the Windows Fluid. So if, and we don't want to sort of sound negative at this point, but should Arsenal miss out on Rice, then of course they're going to turn their attention with a similar kind of budget or less budget slightly for a player like Caicedo. The desire to drop 70 plus million in January doesn't just entirely disappear, but Mm. priorities change, finances change, and Declan Rice wasn't available in January. So Arsenal will never say Rice is one, Caicedo's two, we'll get one and then we'll assess two. And two is definitely behind one in the pecking order because that's just not the narrative that you would ever put out. Because if Man City did come in and get Rice, then who's to say that Arsenal wouldn't miss out on Caicedo because he feels that he was always a number two. And this is Mm. where reporting can be quite challenging and context is important because every single source connected to a sale on the buying side or obviously on the player side is always going to express that desire that the move might be possible. They're never going to categorically say it's an absolute no for a credible target. And this is why Caicedo will always kind of linger, but Rice is the priority at this stage. And then fee-wise for Caicedo, I'll reiterate what I've said consistently in many times, that when Caicedo signed his new deal, after Arsenal failed to land him, all because of Brighton, of course, Arsenal couldn't have done any more. Mm. The indication from Roberto De Zerbi and Paul Barber, the CEO of the football club at Brighton, was that Caicedo would be able to move. And there's no way Caicedo would have signed the extension if he didn't think that Brighton would sell for a reasonable offer. And reasonable in the eyes of the Caicedo camp is a similar ballpark to what was paid for Chuameni. Now, I'm a little bit loath to compare players like for like because they've got different contracts, they're different profiles, they're different whatever. But generally, they see that rough valuation of about 80 million euros all in as fair. And then Chelsea's bid a few weeks ago was 60 million. So if Mm. you're Chelsea and you think that the players genuinely, as we sometimes hear, 100 or 120 million, you don't start at 60. When has any transfer ever happened when the indicative or marker bid is, say, 60, and the final price is more than 30 or 40 million than that first bid? Very rarely. I can't think of any of them. So if you're bidding about 60, it means that in a worst case scenario, you think they might ask for 80, 85 or 90, but probably no more than that. So I think Caicedo will go somewhere for 70 guaranteed and 10 add-ons, something in that Mm. ballpark. And if Arsenal don't get Rice or if they do and they knock a bit of the price that West Ham want for him, who's to say they won't move? But at the moment, it's not active. It's not advancing they're very much focusing on rice first and then we'll have to wait and see what happens because it's a long window Mm. i wish west ham would knock some of the price off for rice that would be rather nice uh, if that did happen um i look forward to seeing kind of the the caicedo deal progress somewhat Mm. what i've found and i I don't want to go too in depth on this point in particular but i think you know it'd be amiss of me if i didn't bring up considering we're talking about that chelsea bid that went in at 60 million that was 10 million less than what arsenal bids um for caicedo in january and yet I mean, a lot of Arsenal fans feel a little bit aggrieved that their opening bid of £90 million all in, including relatively unrealistic add-ons, if we talk about it in the context of Arsenal for Declan Rice at £90 million, was kind of laughed off and rejected out of hand and described in some circles mm-hmm. as embarrassing and derisory, which I kind of struggle with those kind of words um, for figures in the excess of £90 million. But... <laughs> Do you feel as though Arsenal maybe get a little bit more scrutiny than perhaps a, a club like Chelsea in the market, despite the fact that they bid 10 million less than Arsenal did just six months ago? Yes, but I think that it's down to the fact that Arsenal are disciplined and methodical and Chelsea are a bit more aggressive and bullish. 
Mm. And sometimes that comes off. But a lot of the time you send the wrong message because if you bid too low, you can damage your relationship with the club. And obviously we've seen that a little bit with Manchester United and Chelsea in Mason Mount, that when Manchester United came in too low, 40 million, Chelsea laughed it out the room and that didn't go down well. And then when Manchester United said, okay, we will up our bid by about 15 million, Chelsea still didn't accept it. And now Manchester United feel that Chelsea are being unreasonable. So if you go too high or too low or too quick, there's a chance that you win on, if you like, social media. Wow, look at what Chelsea have spent. Wow, look at who Chelsea have brought in. And it all might work. But there's also a chance that you overpay and there's also a chance that you're a bit too maverick. So Arsenal's position is value and discipline. And they do that to make sure that when they then go to the next deal and the next deal and the next deal, people are not holding them to account. Whereas as soon as Chelsea started speaking about Declan Rice a few months ago, and they were one of the linked clubs, what was the first thing that David Moyes said on record? Enzo Fernandez quotes the British transfer record fee. And immediately it's being held against a club like Chelsea. And if they negotiate for Caicedo, you've got to factor in, even though he's a completely different position and player, the 20 million or so more than most of the industry feel was warranted for Mark Kukurea. Manchester City mm -hmm. walked away because they didn't even want to really go up to 40 million. Chelsea paid over 60 million. So again, Brighton are going to be there saying, this is Chelsea. They don't give up. They go up and up and up. And that isn't really a criticism of Chelsea. It's just their style. They want, want, want. And the reason why they overpay is because the profile of players they're going for are young and they see the transfer fee as the part that's the investment, not the expense. And then in return for that, if you like, overpaying a little bit, they try and get the player on a long-term contract on a lower wage. And as a result, over time, if it works, they get their value back. With Arsenal, they're a more established model and more stable. So they constantly want to protect themselves against getting yardsticked off one deal for the next one and the next one. And this is why we see a sort of tiptoe approach. And I think that even though it happens with virtually every deal, we saw it with the failed attempt for Vlaevich. We saw it with Mikhailo Mudrik. We're seeing it for Declan Rice. We might see it for Timber, although let's see whether the second bid gets accepted. But Arsenal tend to make a first bid that isn't always for really big targets at big money, a first bid. It tends to be more a marker. And I can't think of many where Arsenal's first bid has been accepted. But that's, again, not a criticism because they're not expecting it to be accepted. They're laying out their position. They're showing some of their cards in the hope that in doing so, you start to get towards a middle ground without as many games because you're making it clear from the word go, this is our position. So Arsenal's first bid for Rice is making it clear. If you want 100 million, then you're going to have to agree with us a big element of that top loaded with add-ons that you might not get. And if you want a big chunk up front from the guaranteed fee, you're going to have to accept a lower guaranteed fee. And that's because if you flash back six months, there was nobody in the industry that was thinking Rice was 100 million. West Ham was struggling. They were flirting with relegation. Nobody realized that they'd get European football, which is a bit of extra money for them as well. David Moyes' mm. job was under threat. 75 to 85 was the all-in ballpark. And I think that if at that point someone had put that on the table, if somehow a window was open in a hypothetical, I think that West Ham, when they were struggling mid-season, would have sold. But obviously, that's not how the window works. Now West Ham can be a little bit stronger and they believe that they've got a bunch of interests. So the price has gone up. 
And I think that Arsenal are well within their rights to be saying we're probably still 10 million above what we thought we were going to pay six months ago. You've got good money for a player that wants to leave. You accept the player is going to leave. And right now we're the only bidder. So Arsenal don't need to go any higher. And I think where this differs from Mudrik is that I don't think Manchester City, if they come in, are going to be blowing the Arsenal bid out the water. So mm. if it's higher, it's probably going to be higher to the tune of 100 million. And I think that as long as it's not 105, 110, as long as it's not like 70 million of it up front, as long as it's something that isn't crazy, I would fully expect Arsenal, if they have to, to match the bid. And this, again, is one of the challenges in all of this, that if you know someone else is coming, you need to save a little bit, potentially, because the last thing Arsenal want to do is get to 100 million, then find City enter and say 105, or it's like for like. But cities might be accepted because if Arsenal have an add-on that's 10 million for winning the Premier League and City have an add-on which is 10 million for winning the Premier League, then which club in terms of accepting have you got better chance of getting that add-on from? We have to be brutally honest. It's probably Manchester City. So the negotiation is much more complex, which is why it's not actually about the number. It's about the structure. And West Ham want gettable add-ons. Man City would technically have an advantage there. And they want a big chunk maybe around half of the guaranteed fee portion up front. And that's going to be 80, 85 million in West Ham's eyes. And Arsenal a little bit lower at this point, but let's wait and see when the third bid goes in. So people will listen to this and say, you're just rambling. We don't care about that. Is he going to join or isn't he going to join? When's the bid going in? Is he going to be an Arsenal player? It's not that black and white. There's a Mm. real feeling Rice wants Arsenal, but you've got to agree a deal with West Ham United. And as hopefully I've explained, it's not about the 100 million and God, why are Arsenal just not going to 100 million? It's about the structure as well. And even with Mudrik, Arsenal basically hit the valuation, but they didn't hit the structure that Shakhtar were looking for. So structure is really as important as number. And I think that's my catchphrase during every transfer window. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I, the, the parallels to the Mudrick deal really bugs me when people talk about kind of the, and a lot of people talk about as a criticism of Edu or Arsenal, the priority targets aren't always got. And I just think that the ones that Arsenal have missed out on, you know, there are tangible reasons as to why Arsenal missed out on those players, why they missed out on Mudrick, why they missed out on Lissandro Martinez, why they missed out on Rafinha. The, the latter two in particular, because both mm-hmm. of those players had desires to go to Manchester United and Barcelona as a priority between those two. And with Mudrick, as you described perfectly, the it was all about kind of the, the Chelsea coming with a structure that Arsenal weren't willing to match in terms of the valuation. And Mudrick's desire to move to the Premier League was greater than his desire to move just to Arsenal. So he moved to Chelsea to get that move in January. So... And obviously Shakhtar as well were very much pushing to get that deal done in that period of time as well. So all of those contributing factors led to, unfortunately, Arsenal coming out second best, which in the transfer window, if you come out second best, you you end with nothing. You know, it's a, it's a cutthroat mm-hmm. business. I want to talk also more about some of the other players that have not been highlighted as much. With a couple of comments in the chat highlight this. Uh, Crezio says, is Xavi Simmons an option? I really like him. And Akmal says, is there any truth to the Xavi Simmons interest? You know, we've heard that um, as reports coming out today that his he hasn't necessarily got the keenness to return to PSG, despite their mm. 
what you look at as an insanely low buyback clause. And I think maybe that people should learn from this that, you know, people say if we lose Balogun or we lose Charlie Patino, that buyback clauses should be included in those deals. A buyback clause doesn't guarantee you the player will return if you pay it. The player has to have the desire as well to return. And Xavi Simmons in this case doesn't seem to have that. So what do you make of Arsenal's interest and potential to to move for a player that's also just switched agents to a very well-connected with Arsenal representative? Mm. Yeah, and I think that's generated a lot of the links. And as you rightly say, the player's not necessarily keen on PSG, but where the 6 million euros or about 5 million quid release clause or buyback in this case comes in is that it sets a market valuation to a degree. Now, naturally, when you insert a buyback clause, you're often trying to get a special value. And that means that, the number is not necessarily reflective of the player's market value, but quite clearly when it's out there, other clubs are going to try and seize upon that and see whether they can strike a deal. So first and foremost, Simmons has to communicate to PSG because PSG are really keen to trigger that. And as you say, if they're going to trigger that, the player's also a part of that. It's not just a case of we're buying you back. The player has to say, yes, I also trigger it as well. And as a consequence, it's going to be a case of who's got the clearest pitch to an incredible talent at this point. And my understanding is basically that Simmons' perspective is that he's not desperately keen to leave PSV this summer. That's number one. So the window could shut and he could be in the same place. And then number two is if he leaves, and this might work against Arsenal, game time is a very important factor in all of this, which is also one of the reasons why he's slightly put off as far as going back to PSG is concerned too. So what we can say is that from the Arsenal point of view, a player that they've tracked, and in particular, they enjoy the versatile skill set that he has, because along with midfield, can play on the wing as well. But it's sort of reminds me, even though it might seem like a strange comparison of Balogun, because you've got a player that feels like they've really broken through and the next step is vital. And it's the same with Balogun as well. Comes back to Arsenal from an amazing loan spell, wins his first international cap for America after switching allegiances, wins a trophy with the national team, scores in the final, comes back to Arsenal. Then if you find your third, fourth, fifth in the pecking order, or from Simmons's point of view, if he moves to Arsenal and finds he's just one for the future, they might have to do something in order to provide a clearer pathway. Otherwise, I don't think that he would be picking a club like Arsenal. So it may be a situation where instead of doing a signing for the now, if Arsenal are to move, they think more in terms of those pathways again. And as a consequence, because the PSV move only happened in 2022, maybe the logic is to sign and loan back to them for a season and then assess the player in a year. And that might be something that the player is open to. But at the bottom of the sort of Arsenal pecking order, despite being a young talent, is not going to work for Simmons. He wants to play Mm. 30-odd games a season. Can he do that at Arsenal because of rotation in a Champions League season with FA Cup, League Cup? Maybe. But the reason why he's reticent to go back to PSG is because in 2020-21, 
he sort of broke into the setup there and only made one league on appearance, but it was to be expected because of his age. And then at the beginning of the following season, before the eventual move to PSV, there were all kinds of pathways promised and nothing really materialized. And again, it was just a handful of games before the move to PSV. And then at PSV, he suddenly had this big breakthrough. I think it's 19 league goals in only 34 mm. games at the age of 20. And as an attacking midfielder that can also play wide, Arsenal or anybody is going to have to make it abundantly clear that even at 20, you're going to get 20 or 30 games. And when I look at Arsenal's squad, I'm not so sure, but we'll obviously have to wait and see what happens with the midfield in terms of any outgoings before determining where he might fit in. Yeah, and by the way, the same for Vega as well, if Arsenal were to move in that direction. Yeah, he was someone mentioned at the beginning of the window from an Arsenal perspective. It seems like with the Havertz deal, that's kind of taken that attacking midfield role, if you like. And I feel like, you know, Martin Odegaard's partner being Havertz fills that slot quite nicely. And you've still got Fabio Vieira. You've still got Emil Smith-Rowe at the club as well that have got futures that in, in mm. attacking midfield that Arteta has used them in in the past. But it's interesting with Javi Simmons because he's, he looks such an amazing talent that if Arsenal have the opportunity to sign him, you in your mind, you think you've got to try and get that type of deal done if it's available because it's better than that than letting him go to you one of your rivals but you're right that if you're Xavi Simmons why would you move to Arsenal right now knowing that the minutes aren't just simply going to be there for you they've just got into the Champions League Arteta as a manager yeah. is known for not for you know for all of his successes all of his great abilities one of his drawbacks one of the few that he has is actually his rotation so far and his substitutions and in-game management that's the area I look at Arteta and think yeah. that's where he needs to develop as a coach so Maybe the best thing for Xavi Simmons is to stay at PSV for the next year, assess options after another season. PSV, it suits them great because not only do they get to keep the player, but they get to arguably add more value to him in the following season as well that he could go for uh, way more than what they got for Cody Gakpo. So it'd be interesting to see how that one uh, moves forward. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. And the same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with Mook Delivery. Are you in? Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Speaking of players that, again, it's difficult to see where minutes might come for a player of such a young age is Romeo Lavia at Southampton. You know, the interest of Arsenal is said to be there. Uh, and also there's more and more Premier League sides coming to the, the table, it seems, for Lavia as well. Mm. Do you have that same sense with him, like you've mentioned with Javi Simmons, that even though there seems to be a good relationship on the agent side, because I believe he shares the same agent as, as Bakaya Saka, so there's that really strong relationship mm. with the young player there that Arsenal have already established. But if you're Lavia, you're looking at that situation and going, well, they've brought in, you know, they've, they've got Partey for however long, if he stays, if he goes, we're not 100% sure what's going to happen with him yet. You know, you've got Jorginho there, you've got Rice potentially coming in. The the two midfield positions above the six look like they're going to be mm. taken up by Odegaard and potentially Havertz in the upcoming season. 
And you're 19 years of age off the back of a 30-game season for Southampton, stood out, potentially moving for around £40 million. Again, I don't necessarily see the opportunity immediately there for him either. Not necessarily. I think a player like Jorginho could easily see less game time and can be important to Arsenal in a squad sense. Mm. But that's the beauty when you sign a player like that. Arteta and everyone connected to the Arsenal hierarchy was clear on what the role required was between when he was signed and the end of the season and what the longer term relationship would be like. So someone like Jorginho isn't expecting to be playing in every single game for Arsenal and you have to bring through youth. And the thing about Lavia is that he's very mature for a 19-year-old and attracting interest from, yes, Arsenal, but I think that Liverpool are very much ones to watch here as well. And Southampton are certainly hoping for the best part of 50 million, whether or not the fee is that high, I think remains to be seen, especially now they've gone down into the championship. But one to watch for sure. And a Rice-Lavia-type partnership could really be very effective. And, you know, when we talk about Simmons, despite the fact he looks electric and obviously a very different kind of player to Lavia. But when you talk about an attacking midfielder like Simmons, he's done that at PSV in his first breakthrough season. So he needs to back that up. He needs to develop. He needs to learn the Premier League, the pace, mm. the intensity. And you need not only the speed of movement that he has, but also the speed of thought. And there's still a little bit of improvement there because it's so raw, so innate which is brilliant because you can score incredible goals but sometimes you need to take a breath sometimes you need to learn game management sometimes you need to be aware of more in your surroundings and he's getting there Simmons and in fact he's well above virtually everybody else within his age group but with Lavia there's a bit more of a coolness at times he can be a little bit sloppy I think it was Liverpool last game of the season he gave away a bit of a horror goal with a short Mm. pass backwards so there's elements in the game that you feel might need polishing. Mm. This is the beauty of being surrounded by top quality players at Arsenal. He spent all season being one of the shining lights in a Southampton team lacking in confidence, lacking in discipline and that uncertainty and ultimately getting relegated makes it very hard, but he's got quite good leadership and he's reasonably uh, cool and controlled on the ball, especially for a 19 year old. And uh, as a consequence, I do think that was he to move to either Arsenal or Liverpool, he would play 20 odd games and, if that is 10 less than at Southampton last season, but still ultimately that every other Premier League game or every other Premier League game, plus some League Cup, maybe some Champions League cameos off the bench and so on, I think he'd be perfectly happy with that because he's only 19. And then in a year's time or two years time, you start to try and assert yourself. So to sign someone like Lavia, it's a bit easier when you're pitching the pathways because he understands already the Premier League. So he'll know exactly what he's walking into if either Arsenal or Liverpool choose to bring him out of the championship for what I think won't quite be 50 million, but we'll have to wait mm. and see depending on the volume of suitors. Yeah, indeed. You know, it's it's going to be a price of deal in Southampton or in every right to try and maximise that sale. So and if you're Arsenal, you know, you've gone for Caicedo in January, you've not got him. If you want to bring in a a cheaper alternative, a player that's 
played in the Premier League just six months less than, than Caicedo and impressed as well for a team that doesn't have the same resources and quality as a side like Brighton, you know, mm. is a very good option. The last player I want to focus on before we take a couple of questions from the chat box before we close uh, is Ivan Fresneda and in particular kind of that right back position uh, as well, because even though Yuri and Timber looks like he's closing on that move, mm. he's not, he's not an out and out right back. I think he's kind of suits the, the role that right back has become at Arsenal and I think he will feature there for Arsenal. But I've always kind of looked at that right back position and with Tierney on the other side and, you know, whatever happens with Tierney this summer, it's gone very quiet on his potential exit. But I've always felt like Arsenal could do with a different style of option at right back. You know, they've got White, Tomiyasu, Timber coming in. They're all players that I don't necessarily associate with their contributions in the final third. Fresneda is still a player that needs to be, you know, I think trimmed somewhat of the the fat of the the youth side of him and still needs to be refined as a as a footballer in the final third but he does offer you more pace he does offer you a bit more progression stylistically are you surprised maybe that Arsenal haven't made a move for a player that is still very much on the market right now yeah I think they're waiting for other targets knowing that he's on the market and I seem to recall and uh, apologies off the top of my head if I get this wrong but the relegation means that the release clause in his Valladolid contract halves, or I think mm. halves anyway. I would have to check to be 100% accurate. So it was a 40 million euros release clause. And I think that now it's set more like 20 million euros. There's a real bargain to be had. That's only about 17 million quid. And I think Arsenal also haven't moved because they got the sense when it looked like it was either going to be Arsenal or Dortmund. The, the player was not so sure, again, about pathways, again, about game time, but also perhaps leaning a little bit more towards Dortmund. So they're one to watch. I think that if it is on a release clause that's halved, then in likelihood, it's a bargain. And obviously, it isn't only Arsenal that have put in the legwork there. And the priority from Arsenal's perspective in that position might be to try and find a little bit more experience, which is where other names start to be spoken about ahead of Fresneda. And this might also be down to the fact that maybe Arsenal felt in the run-in towards the end of the season, not just in that position, but across the back line, they were wobbling a bit in the absence of Saliba and with holding or Kiwior, who I, by the way, think is going to be an underrated player for Arsenal. And I think mm. he's actually going to be quite important next season as a squad player. But without Saliba and maybe with a bit of nerves or maybe with a bit of bad fortune or maybe even just with a bit of quality against them, for whatever reason, the defence felt lacking in maybe a bit of maturity. And every time Arsenal, pretty much since those games against, say, Villa and Bournemouth, that they were able to fight back in. Every time Arsenal got in a little bit of a hole, it was almost like the quality in the front line got them out of it. Even in that really disappointing game against Southampton, they still were able to find the late goals to get a point. It wasn't a good point in the mm. end. And I think we knew that that was going to be the case off the back of that Liverpool draw as well. But nonetheless, there was that ability for quality and maturity from some of the younger players to score and to... I suppose now we can't say in hindsight bail Arsenal out, but it appeared like they might have bailed Arsenal out at the time. Then you look at the back and even Ramsdale was shaky and making errors at times. And I think Arsenal look at that and think if they're going to go for depth or if they're going to go for starting players, 
under both scenarios, they maybe need just a little bit more experienced at this point than Fresneda in that position. And that's why I think the other fullbacks are being looked at at this point. Yeah, indeed. Uh, I think it's a really good point about kind of the experience of things with Arsenal because there is so much youth being brought into this Arsenal team that making sure that balance is there. You look at the back line in particular, Ramsdale, what, 24, Ben White, 24-25, Saliba, 21-22, Gabriel, 24-25, Zinchenko, 25. You know, we do lack at Arsenal an experienced figurehead. The most experienced defender we have is Rob Holding, who could Mm. still move on this summer and face significant scrutiny last season for some of his performances so it is it is intriguing that said I have seen Arsenal burned with some experienced signs at fullback Stefan Listiner comes to mind as, as one of those uh, so it's not always guaranteed that you know a more experienced player uh, is, is going to bring you exactly what you need but I think it's certainly a, a fair point well raised moving then into the, the chat box for the last uh, just under 15 minutes that we've got left on today's show um, before I do that there's over there's around 1500 of you watching please do make sure you drop a like on the video subscribe Ben tell people where they can find you as well and can see your work you can find me at jacobs ben on twitter you can go to cbs for the writing side of things and interestingly well maybe boringly who knows but if you want to sort of delve into more specific topics sometimes it will be arsenal related brand new podcast launched today it's myself good friend of mine angus scott who some of you will have seen during the world cup on itv and fabrizio romano the three of us have got a weekly podcast launched today on the court offside platform and you can find that on youtube you can find that on fabrizio romano's Substack. you can find that on apple and spotify so it might not be as interesting to arsenal fans this week to be perfectly honest because we delved into all the saudi transfers but give it a listen and like i say court offside is where you can find that and it'll be every monday afternoon there you go. Make sure you check it out, people. It's certainly one to watch, especially with how active Arsenal can be, as we know, in the window. Uh, let's tackle some of your questions. Rampur did ask about Fresnader, but we've now touched upon that. Uh, DJ says, what is happening with Sambi Lukonga? Uh, do you think he could still play with Arsenal in an eight-role next season? It's an interesting one, isn't it? I feel like it's more likely Lukonga will leave. And mm. it does feel like if Rice comes in, then Lukonga goes out. But I understand the question and I understand how there could be a relationship. But I just think there's too much interest in the player and there's not enough pathways or game time at Arsenal. So it's going to depend a lot on whether or not Lukonga perhaps wants to go out on loan again. And at Crystal Palace didn't play particularly often I think it was less than 10 games off the top of my head and I'm not convinced that they're desperate to try and sign permanently I think the team to watch is actually more Burnley and they would be very interested in a deal so usually after the first loan it becomes kind of player preference and we're going to find this with Balogun as well does Lukonga want to go back out on loan again or is he going to turn around and say I don't think I've got a future at Arsenal so I think Arsenal's preference would probably be to loan because there's still that huge potential and he's still Mm. relatively young as well and I think that Vincent company is quite happy to do that because uh, remember they have that relationship from when company was at Ajax so he knows the player well the personality well and this is where the Burnley interest comes into the mix so I'd keep a very close eye on that and 
I think the other club that were looking was Sevilla. But mm. remember, Monchi's gone to Villa now, so a lot might have changed at Sevilla. So I've got to be honest, I haven't really made a recent inquiry on the Sevilla side, but they had that historical interest, but Monchi's left. So there's a fair few clubs interested. I think if Arsenal have their way, he'll go and it'll be another loan spell. But it just depends on the player. And this is what preseason's all about. Can he come back to Arsenal if a loan isn't established and can he catch the eye of Arteta and that's ultimately what happened with Saliba remember when Saliba returned from Marseille he had no idea if he'd play or not and Mikel Arteta just left him for about a week so he could assess how's this player going to respond just to being dropped into pre-season then they had conversations and then Saliba was straight in and Arsenal haven't looked back so you just never know because I think if Arsenal fans were Maybe I'm completely wrong here, but if Arsenal fans were picking their starting eleven on day one of pre-season when Saliba first returned from Marseille, I wonder how many would have put Saliba in the starting eleven. I think very few. And now I would imagine that very few would keep him out of the starting eleven. Mm, it's interesting. I think you know, the, there was so much hype around William Saliba. Um, I think what he had going in his favour was the lack of other options. And I think Tommy Asu's injury at the start of the season obviously led into him involved in the team very quickly. So uh, it's an intriguing one with Saliba and the profile of him when you compare that to Lukonga. When I last chased up my line on Lukonga was back in January and the answer I got back was that even prior to the loan to Crystal Palace, he was still very keen to make a career at Arsenal and that keenness to stay at Arsenal and succeed there was remained strong. But how the last six months has gone, you know, the Palace loan wasn't, a major success by any means. You know, he was liked by Vieira, but when Roy Hodgson came in, he yeah. then found it more difficult to get minutes. So it's it's difficult when you're on loan and the manager that's brought you in leaves uh, because you don't have that same assurance <laughs> yeah. that you had when you made that decision to join. So I think that maybe a loan is the right move. The problem that Arsenal have is obviously a dwindling contract in that case, and there's no guarantee that the value increases if you do allow them to leave for another year, unless you agree an extension like they did with Reese Nelson when they sent him to Feyenoord for the season. A um, couple more uh, before we wrap up. Uh, this is uh, I'm going to ask this with the uh, due sensitivity that it's got, so feel free to answer this as vaguely uh, as you like. Uh, Barry Burns says, for transfer windows, how much time do you spend ringing sources uh, or do they message you? And where do you get your info from which I the last question is obviously I'm not expecting to give up sources but you know you know where I'm coming from yeah I mean no journalist will ever reveal their source what I would say Indeed. is it's not really for me about the window the window is where you cash in you might find the same Tom but you work hard 365 days a year to develop contacts and I always yeah. say this to any young journalist that it's very easy to follow a story and think yikes someone's asking me to get a line on this player. Who's the agent? How do I contact them? Right, I've got an email or I've got a press officer or I've got a club source or I've got a player or I've got an agent. And, you know, without saying specific sources, your sources naturally come from everywhere. Some of them are in recruitment teams. Some of them are club staff. Some of them are club owners. Some of them are players. Some of them are scouts. Some of them are rivals because they also know what other clubs are doing. And you always have to go to both sides. And the reason for that is because when people say, oh, the media, they're just fueling West Ham's Man City are interested. Well, nobody responsibly is doing that because if a West Ham source tells me Man City are going to bid, I don't just swallow that and publish that. I go to Man City. And why would a Man City source confirm that if it was nonsense? So you're always looking for two sources or more. And the way that you may move quicker 
And this is obviously where someone like David Ornstein is masterful, is you start to learn over time who you can trust and who, if they give you something or if you get something out of them, you can be categorical that that's right and honest and correct and there's no games. And generally, the agent side will be fueling more than the club side. And generally, a prospective buyer will be more reliable, in my opinion, than mm -hmm. a seller. That's not to say a seller is unreliable, but a seller might want to fuel interest. Whereas if a buyer says they've tabled an offer, it's very likely they've tabled an offer. Why would they need to lie about that? So there's all kinds of considerations. But the point that I'm making is more, if you go to all these types of sources during the window and they don't know you and you've not developed a personal relationship with them as well as a professional relationship with them, then why are they going to tell you anything? Yeah. And they're going to feel bugged by you because it's their busiest time of year. So 90% of what I do is develop a relationship where contacts don't see me as hounding them, where they don't see me as only contacting them when I need something. They see me as someone that's in regular contact with them. I develop a personal relationship with them. I ask them about their family. I might play a round of golf with them. I go and get a coffee with them. I don't expect anything in return. And then one day, they may want to come to me with something. I may want to come to them with something. And the other weird thing is, if you've got a high-level contact, you still may not use them yeah. as often as people think. Because if I know an owner of a football club, I'm not going to want to bug them with every little thing. Is it a two-year deal or is it a three-year deal? Is the fee 17 million or is it 17.5 million? We found this with Havertz, you know, 65, 67.5, maybe it's 70. You've got to know when it's worth using that contact. And also, most importantly, you have to be able to not use stuff. So virtually every journalist knows a whole lot more than they'll ever say. And they might even have three or four massive things, but it's simply a case that it was told to you off record. And that, again, is how you develop the contacts. If I can have a beer with somebody, let's just make something up to make sure that we don't accidentally fuel a story. And let's pick Thierry Henry because it's historical. If I'm sitting having a beer with someone senior at Arsenal and they say Thierry Henry was actually never wanting to join Arsenal and David Dean bribed him and bullied him. <laughs> and he was always actually a Manchester United fan and it was his dream club. And he went to Old Trafford for a medical and he got hauled away. I've purposefully given you something insane that clearly yeah. would never happen because Thierry Henry is an Arsenal legend. Then, sure, I could go out and put something out there and I, that source would probably never speak to me again. So mm. you learn a lot of things and you're like, wow, that's box office. Wow, that's where this is heading. Wow, this is definitely going to happen. And you have to respect your source. So Twitter wants to know everything first and it wants everything to be definite and it wants everything to be exclusive and it wants everything to be immediate and it wants an update every second. And then it's bored of the update, but then it wants another update and then it's bored of the update. And you're like, well, you can't have it both ways. And as a journalist, it's more important to try and take your time and compile context. And you do that through the relationships that you build. So you go to all sides. And by default, if you go to all sides, it's going to be a little bit of a slower process. And we're never always going to be right because the window itself is unreliable. 
So something that was correct at one point may change. If I tell you now that Caicedo is not an Arsenal priority, come back to me in a day or two if they don't get Rice and I might have a different story. But that doesn't mean that I wasn't right when we were first discussing it. It just means that the situation's changed. But of course, you get Joe1234 AFC that's quite happy to retweet you and hammer you. (laughs) Me too. He's always on me, that Joe1234 AFC. (laughs) But you have to laugh about it. You have to have confidence in your own information. You have to try and engage with fan bases. You have to be humble about the situation. It's not the end of the world. It's not life and death. We're all trying to do our job. We're all earnest. We're all genuinely going to sources and trying to give fans the inside scoop. And if we're right more than we're wrong, then we've effectively done our job. And as I say, with sources, it's really just about either trying to get them to go on record when possible or protecting them and that information and making sure that you show some balance because if i only mm. go to arsenal i'll only get one side of the story mm. oh, absolutely I, I found you know i've been in this business for two to three years you know i was teaching uh, in 2020 and i quit that job to chase this job and chase a dream of covering arsenal and to be honest the transfer side of things is the is the hardest part because you know there is that insatiable desire from people to know more and especially for your own reputation as a journalist to have more sources and then when you're coming in at you know you know i was coming in at, at 26 rather than starting with a journalism degree and going in at 18 years of age you know i it was the biggest challenge is building up those and playing catch up effectively to everyone else, you know, and building up those relationships, by the way, for all those thinking why I've taken up golf, you've now learned the reason. No, I'm only joking. I'll just enjoy it. Um, but uh, it's, I, I found it very much, you know, that is, is, is a really big challenge It is building up those relationships. And uh, yeah, it's, you hit the nail on the head of specifically what resonated with most in that, in that monologue was, the information you get that you you don't talk about, you know, the things that you you hear about, the the information that you get that, you know, you you wouldn't because you wouldn't want to burn that source. And you know, it's it's almost like backwards journalism in a way because our job is to try and find things out and you know um, produce stories. But it's when you find some really interesting things out and you can't say mm-hmm. them, it almost feels like you're doing the opposite of what your role is, and it is a strange dynamic. But Ben, I appreciate your honesty with that answer genuinely. And I think that uh, Barry in the chat also that was that asked the question mm. did as well. So I really appreciate your openness to to that question. Um, yeah, and just briefly as well, because cool. Love Island is only a minute away. Oh, it's fine. I've got to It's all good. <laughs> but I think, unfortunately, with social media, it's actually less about a craving for information and more about a craving sometimes for good news, especially on Twitter. So if you say something a fan base wants to hear, you're a great journalist. If you say something a fan base doesn't want to hear, you're a terrible journalist. And nobody comes back and says, well, you actually write about this. And I think I had it with the Arsenal fan base with Tielemans. And it's like, well, I broke the story that Arsenal were interested in Tielemans. I broke the story that they'd agreed personal terms, but they hadn't decided yet. And then the whole summer, it was, why haven't we signed Tielemans? And somehow it's my fault. When actually all I've actually reported is that Arsenal know they can get Tielemans, but they haven't decided yet if they want to move for Tielemans. And that sort of was the whole summer plot line around Tielemans. And of course, they didn't move. So somehow Ben Jacobs said, Yuri Tielemans is going to sign for Arsenal. When did I ever say it was a done deal? But you kind of get misquoted. And Mm -hmm. it's been the same with the Manchester United takeover that suddenly 
having engaged with the Manchester United fan base and it all being quite positive because I've covered 15 takeovers and including a Chelsea takeover that was run by the same group as running the Manchester United takeover, people suddenly get wind because I haven't said Qatar's going to win yet and others have implied it. And suddenly that's become about Qatar's going to win. If anybody says that they might win, they could win. Yeah. Maybe they're even confident about winning, but they haven't won yet. It's attack, 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 attack. And it always makes me laugh because when I did the Newcastle takeover, I was accused for 18 months of being a Qatar plant because I was working at BN Sports. I lived in Qatar for five years. And now I'm anti-Qatar simply because I've said there's been no winner yet of the takeover. And there hasn't been a winner of the takeover because obviously if there was, Manchester United would have new owners. But people don't care about the context. They just care about the top line. So if I was to come on this show and say, Rice is definitely going to Arsenal and Timber's definitely done, then I would obviously be gambling and being irresponsible. But if it happens, tier one journalist. And ultimately, mm. this is sort of how Twitter looks at things. And the real life window you have to be patient because Arsenal could be six inches away from getting Declan Rice. But until you're over the finishing line, as journalists, we have to be a bit more responsible in terms of how we frame things, which is not sitting on the fence. It's just the reality of how many transfers have happened and how many times sometimes do we get burned as journalists? I think I got burned a bit in the Mudrick saga because it was so obviously Arsenal. And mm. I was fortunate enough to get an exclusive interview with Mudrick and he told me to my face yeah. that... He can't say no to Arsenal. And yeah. Shakhtar was saying, it's Arsenal. And Chelsea was saying, two weeks before they signed him, we're not even going to enter this race because the price is too high. And then Chelsea lost a game. And the ownership group went, you know what? He's still overpriced, but we've got no choice. We need to move. And obviously nobody saw that coming. Arsenal didn't see it coming. Chelsea didn't even see it coming. So, of course, people can go back to the interview with Mudrick or tweets that are a day old, a week old, a month old, and they can say, you know what? You were wrong. And you can bill it that way. And that's fine. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. But you've also got to understand that the window is not linear. So you can actually be accurate at one point and then something can change. And you're still accurate when you report it's changed. But Twitter doesn't look at it that way. Twitter just wants to call you a fraud and hurl abuse your way. And that's fine. You're thick-skinned as a journalist. It's not like I lose yeah. any sleep over it. But I just think that a real journalist like yourself, top of his game, broken into the Arsenal spheres, great broadcaster, top journalist, you work <laughs> in a way where you ensure your information is yeah. backed up. And then if it's right, that due diligence pays off. And if it's wrong, then you can at least go to bed at night saying, okay, maybe I got it wrong, but three or four sources I trust still backed it up. So something must have changed. And I think that is just the reality of the transfer window. It's not the journalists that are unreliable. It's actually the transfer window itself that is unreliable. 
Uh, yeah, it is that understanding. Again, fantastic answer on that. Yeah, by the way, the Mudrick interview I thought was fantastic. What I loved about the Mudrick interview is that despite all the chaos of like the where's he going to go, where's what's what's happening, I just loved the casual side of the conversation about his favourite things and different. That was that was great. So yeah, brilliant scoop on that end. Uh, and also, you know, we we also now live in a world. One of the more recent things we start to see is the aggregation of news on social media. Um, and I love the point you made about like the tier one journalists because I. I it's what I find really frustrating, of course, is like, yeah, you might get a story and, you know, you, you obviously you write an article on it for the website that you write for. And nine, 99 times out of 100, you know, you spent time writing that piece. An aggregator with, you know, a ridiculous number of followers will take, you know, a few words in that article, tweet it and put your name in brackets. And then that gets way more attention than the time you spent putting into the article that you want people to read. And that's the reality of it. But also alongside that is when people will put things like tier one or tier two or unreliable or hit and miss thing and next to the next to your name and you're like you know i've spent some serious time trying to get that information and i don't get too many scoops because i'm still very i'm burgeoning in this career at this point but you know just because i get that one thing compared to a journalist that's got 50 100 a thousand you know it doesn't mean that 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 information's any less reliable because it's come from a good source but without that reputation of you know breaking a thousand stories and, and getting to that stage it's it's very difficult so if, if anything does take away and i think there's a lot of things to take away from these last 15 minutes that you've been listening to me and ben in particular you know i think that a key thing is that if you see information just see if it's double source see if it's checked see if it turns out to be true you know and i think it's that it's those that are measured in their approach to reporting on stories that you know and it's about being right rather than first in, in this field as well that's that's a big thing that's changed recently is about the desperation to be first so yeah it's it's been a really good conversation ben thank you so much for being open and honest about a lot of the stuff that we've talked about today i know that i can always appreciate that from you when you jump on so thank you for the time uh, i'm not wrapping up because love island has started um <laughs> I, did, I did promise an hour and we've got that so um but ben thank you so much uh tell again tell people they can find you when you're about your brand new podcast that's coming out as well yeah at jacob's ben the podcast is on court offside it's me angus scott fabrizio romano every monday and just to close with good luck to Arsenal in the preseason. I think one thing we didn't touch upon that I'd like to finish on is just mm. I think Arsenal are in for a tremendous window. Kai Havertz in the bag could very much grow into that price tag and fit at Arsenal. Timber is looking very positive. Let's see whether or not the second bid is accepted. I was always told the fee that was being looked for was close to 50 million, but yep. this isn't too far off. So there might be some compromise there. And I still feel that Arsenal are in the box seat for Declan Rice. It's more about Arsenal and West Ham. But again, we have to be cautious because Manchester City haven't yet shown their hand in any kind of formal sense. But it's always been my understanding that Rice is very keen on Arsenal because it ticks a lot of boxes personally and professionally as well. Regular game time. Could he end up being one day a future Arsenal captain? He certainly enjoyed the leadership opportunity. The irony, of course, is Manchester City have lost their captain, but I don't think he'd walk into that football club as captain on day one. You never know, mm. though. Maybe they'll use that as part of leverage to try and convince him as well. But does he play as often at Manchester City to even be the captain? There's all kinds of questions. But Arsenal, I think, are going to spend 200 plus million. I think that they're going to get their priority positions filled. And if they get Rice, they'll have got their priority target. To have got Havertz in the bag already... It's shaping up to be a good window and there's a long way to go. And then more importantly, even though everyone focuses on the incomings, is the fact yeah. that every single contract extension they wanted has come off, including Saliba with that agreement in principle in place. 
So the spine of last season is there. It's a young squad. It's a talented squad. There's unity. They'll feel they've got a point to prove because they really should have got over the line. And I think that nine seasons out of 10, they would have got over the line as well. So you add a bit of quality. If Havertz gets going, if Rice is in the center of the park, I think if Timber comes in, the reason why he's important mm. is because you've got balance potentially with Zinchenko. I think that he could be used as an inverted right back. So then you've got a left and a right balance there. And this is one of the selling points of moving for him and why he's worth the fee, because it's not just about him as an individual, it's balance on both sides. So Arsenal, I think, are in good shape. And for all of the laborious and disciplined nature of their approach, if they can get three or four in and Rice is one of them, and they spend 200 plus million, mm. and they already were challenging for the Premier League last season, and they've already got Champions League football, then they're going to be in a really, really strong position, still with the same unity, still with the same chemistry. So as long as they just don't have a little wobble, then they can get 80-plus points next season again. Yes, maybe you need 95 to win the Premier League, but priority number one for Arsenal is go as far as they can in the Champions League and make damn sure that they're in the top four once again. And I think that with the window they're having, it will be a given that they get 75, 80 points. So that's Champions League football. And then obviously, mm. if you go far in the Champions League, even if you don't end up winning or challenging specifically for the Premier League, it still could be a very good season. So it's moving parts. I think when you make your predictions, you've got to see what every club does and you've got to be at the point of the window where you're almost ready to start game one. Because Arsenal's starting 11 now might be one thing, but it's hypothetical. So let's see if they get Timber over the line, get Rice over the line. Who knows? Maybe they'll still be in the race for a player like Cancelo. Then you can start saying with Havertz, here's the starting 11, here's the quality, here's the shape of the team, here's what's going to change compared to last season. And that's when you can start making your predictions. But at the moment, all the signs are positive. So good luck to Arsenal during the preseason. Great club, great fan base. And despite the wobble, much of last season was very positive and exciting. So let's hope they go far in the Champions League, consolidate where they are. And if they do have a good window, they'll be in a really strong position heading into next season. Absolutely, they will. You know, in terms of a first season to cover the club last year, I picked a hell of a season. So I was very much enjoying the home and away visits uh, to the Emirates and beyond. And I'm hoping that this season brings even more success. And I think you're right. You know, what Arsenal are looking to do uh, is is really exciting and fans have got a reason to be excited. And hopefully if Arsenal can pull it off, it's going to be a very intriguing campaign indeed. A massive thank you again to Ben. You've got a lot of love in the chat box as well. And I'm sure you will in the comment section once people catch up on this that weren't able to watch it live. Thank you, everybody in the chat box and those that are listening or catch up for watching is very much appreciated you can follow ben on twitter at jacobs ben you can find of course his podcast on court offside uh with fabrizio romano and plenty of other uh discussions as well as angus as well that, that was joining angus you Scott, too yeah. uh, yes uh so make sure that you check that one out because it's certainly going to be a great listen uh and we'll be back tomorrow morning as always at 8 a.m um i'm going to start putting the tagline of fantastic arsenal journalist as uh, said by Ben Jacobs. <laughs> Please do. It's accurate as well. I've checked it with more than one source. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, massive thank you again to Ben. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a fantastic evening. Enjoy Love Island. And uh, as always, up the Arsenal. It's the 90 plus minute. 
all your mates around and you've got a McNuggets share box ready to go and you know a late winner's coming. Your mates already got booked for a double dip in and you steal the last nugget, snatching all three points. Perfection. Order now on the McDonald's app for your delivery. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.